This is the Intoxicated Podcast. Hey there. In today's episode, Matt and I, we sat down with Melissa Ryan, couple therapist and addiction counselor, owner of Cambium Counseling in Golden, Colorado. This was a fun interview. We really enjoyed it. I hope you like it. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. And Melissa Ryan, thank you so much for coming today. And I am super excited about our conversation about addiction, working with couples, and also your journey as a therapist. So, um, Melissa, this yeah. is my first time meeting you. It's and nice to meet you, Matt. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to our millions of listeners. We talked for a few minutes before we started <laughs> taping. But what we, I think a great place to start, don't you, Jason, is, Melissa, tell us a little bit about kind of your story. How did you get involved in counseling? Why is this a life passion? And where has the journey led you? Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm going to try to be as succinct as I possibly can, uh, as I shared with you, Matt and Jason. But as they've both said, both Matt and Jason, my name is Melissa Ryan, and I'm a licensed professional counselor. And I'm based in Golden, Colorado. And I have a private practice there, and I work predominantly uh, with couples, folks um, in relationship around issues that come up in relationship. One of them being um, can be addiction. So I, I see some couples where one or more of the partners is in recovery. And uh, how I became a counselor is very. <laughs> it's a very interesting deal. I've always been very passionate about people and their stories. Um, I loved history, so I used to study all kinds of history, and I loved studying about other cultures, and um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, where um, I happened to, to live amongst people from all over the world, um, and I think I just had a fascination about how people see the world, and I've always found that fascinating. So you're saying you almost became an anthropologist? Yeah, actually, that's true. I did take anthropology in college, and I was like, this is amazing. And then I was like, I can't get a job, I don't think. Yeah. So so instead, I got a business degree um, because it seemed practical. Mm. And I do really love the intricacies of business and, again, understanding people's behaviors and patterns. And I did a variety of things from there till until uh, you know arriving at grad school in a master's of counseling program. But I think... A couple pivotal events took place um, during that time. One that switched me from business to more of a nonprofit helping professional, and that was uh, right after I graduated from my undergrad. I went and lived in France for a year, and I taught English. And I also volunteered with UNICEF, which um, works with. It's focused on supporting kids and and um, helping them out. And so during that time, I realized, like, you know what? I, I really am passionate about helping people, and I think when I come back to the U.S., I want to focus on maybe shifting to nonprofit. So then I made that uh, switch to doing more nonprofit work, um, and I worked in a bunch of different settings in schools, and I worked for an art center, and I, I did some urban gardening and all kinds of stuff. And I also did a year of AmeriCorps here in Denver. I worked for Mile High Youth Corps, which is an amazing program that does land and energy conservation work. Um, and one of the perks of my job was having a full-time counselor on or a counselor that we could see while 
during our work day. And as I shared with you, what an amazing thing I thought to go and have somebody to be able to talk out what's going on in my life and and get paid <laughs> to do that. And while you're not making a ton of money in AmeriCorps, right, like you live off a stipend, I just thought it was neat that this program really supported that um, and offered that. And a lot of my peers received services and it destigmatized this idea that about counseling, right? Like up until that point, I hadn't had much exposure to counseling and I wasn't really sure what it was about. And I thought it's only it was for so, really messed up people. Right? That's what that's I had thought or somebody yeah. that's like, you know, in a psychotic break, right. you know? And so this, um, the counselor I saw, Sarah, um, who's still a counselor to this day, uh, specializes in working with um, adolescents and young adults. She was amazing. And I just, she just really created a safe space and what I thought was so amazing is she, we were able to talk about things that I had never been able to talk about. Because like I shared with you guys earlier, I didn't grow up in a family where substances were present, but we definitely, um, both sides of my family, there's addiction and mental health um, issues that are present. And, um, and my family definitely was impacted by Claudia's Black's rules, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. And so, as a family, which we are shifting these patterns, which is so amazing. My Myself and my family members have done a lot of work individually and as a family to shift patterns around talking about the difficult things and, um, and being able to build trust as a result of being able to share difficult emotions. Uh, and it's so cool to see this transformation. And it began, you know, with this experience I had in AmeriCorps, um, which also simultaneously my parents were getting divorced at that time as well. So it was great that I had a counselor. Um, but those that experience and wanting to help people, that's kind of what drove me to, to seek out what opportunities might exist in grad school, um, what opportunities, because I knew I wanted to go back to school because I love school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew I wanted to kind of hone in and develop a sort of mastery around something. And so... Yeah, that's kind of how I entered into counseling. And um, you, you mentioned that um, the dynamics of addiction still existed in your family when you were growing up, even though substances didn't exist in your family when you were growing up. No, no alcohol, no marijuana, or whatever, right? Yeah. But but that it existed elsewhere in your family. Yes. One of the things that I've always I think is super interesting whenever I read about it or talk to people about it or hear about it is the grip that addiction and the behavior patterns around addiction, how they can get so ingrained into a family, even if, like you said, even if the substances aren't there. So so was the pattern from a generation or two above, like there had been alcohol in the family and then even though your parents weren't drinking, they still, they just hung on and clung on to the, the way we behave around addiction, is that? basically what happened yeah that I would say that's accurate Matt yeah like if we so in grad school one of the fun things you do which I think is interesting is what's called a genogram and you look at um, just family patterns health uh, conditions that get passed on um, messages that are communicated one one of the ones I really love is this message of community service so that if I look back multiple generations there's this idea of serving the community in conjunction with that, I can also see patterns of great grandparents and you know great aunts and uncles and, um, that were that have died as a result of the disease of addiction. Mm. Um, and so, 
um, I, you see shifts every generation where um, I would say there has been in some ways improvements around it, but those same patterns of we don't really talk about yeah. what's really going on. Um, if it's uncomfortable, we avoid it. Um, just not really naming difficult situations around grief, around um, ang- anger. Um, just push that stuff down. Just push that stuff, sweep it under the rug, or we blow up about it. Yeah. There was one, I, I, I inherited two family patterns that, that interact with each other in a really interesting way. One side of the family just kind of blows up about things, and the other side of the family doesn't talk about it at all. Um, and, and my parents kind of melded both of those. Um, and so, yeah, they did. I mean, I didn't observe my parents, like I shared with you, when I got older, particularly as I got closer to, to being an adult, I saw my parents drink every, like, a couple times a year, maybe. And it would be like they shared, like, a margarita. But, like, the idea of seeing my parents regularly consume anything, that's just not a part of my story. Mm. Um, and so, but it helped put into context when I learned about family patterns, like why I didn't even have my first any, I didn't have any substances till I was 18, but then by the age of 20, that I would have already had a problem with binge drinking, like why that would have happened so quickly. And understanding family patterns, oh, well, it's because I probably, I most definitely probably have a genetic predisposition. And then there's these family patterns that exist around numbing. And um, if you look at addiction, even though I have aunts and uncles that don't use substances necessarily, they're workaholics. Mm. So it's just manifesting in a different way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and that helps me understand and be kinder to myself around, like, I had a lot of shame around, like, wh- why did I go from zero to 60 so quickly when I was young? And then I didn't drink for a period of time um, in my mid-20s, and then I, like, my later 20s, I had another kind of spike in drinking behavior, and I was trying to understand, you know, why did that happen? And so I can look at, like, oh, okay, I have this predisposition, there's these family patterns at play, and it's really hard to shift like a family pattern that's been in place for many generations, right? Like that is so hard to sh- to make a shift uh, systematically. You know, well, especially a, shift. a lot of our behaviors get ingrained when we're so young, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time you're old enough to analyze this and think about it, it's kind of in many ways too late, right? It's already yes. a pattern that you know now and you embrace. Exactly, and even though my parents very much promoted sobriety and not, you know, like. I remember thinking very down on the idea of consuming drugs and drinking, even though like that was a value that I was brought up with. Obviously, that value was not enough because there's these other patterns at play, and there's this other genetic predisposition at play, you know. And that's what I find really interesting, and also to have um, compassion for myself and other people. Mm. facing this yeah and so in a way and this is generally the case for people like yourself who are super passionate about something so when you based on that and you got Claudia Black's one of her books that really spoke to you and it was like alright I'm in I'm going to intern the Betty Ford Center I'm going to be a therapist who's going to start out helping people 
with family dynamics around mm-hmm. addiction. Is it? Did I get that right to some degree? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I w- yeah, you that perfectly captured it. I actually saw Claudia Black at that symposium oh, speak, okay, but it, but right. it first came up yeah. at the Betty Ford Children's mm-hmm. Program workshop, and then at that same um, at that same conference, Claudia mm-hmm. Black spoke, which was really cool. So I heard it referenced in the Betty Ford uh, workshop, and then. I actually got to go and see her speak at the conference, which was amazing. Um, yeah, so I delved into, you know, interning there was really helpful because, like I told you, it made those dynamics I grew up with come alive mm-hmm. and help put to context. And what I love about understanding family patterns is then it be, it depersonalizes it. It doesn't become, mm-hmm. oh, my parents did this to me or my grandparents or my great-grandparents or my aunts and uncles. It becomes about, like, there's this... Um, way of being that we've internalized Mm -hmm. and these patterns that you know adapt you know got adapted because of things that came up Um, like you know they talk about the silent generation which is um, folks that were alive during World War One and World War Two and the Great Depression and that behavior was an adaptation to things Mm -hmm. that happened right and Mm -hmm. instead of being like, oh, they shouldn't be that way. I like to think of like, well, of course they responded that way and they did the best they could. And if I understand like my family's journey, my both sides of my family homesteaded in Montana before it was a state, um, well, one side before it was a state and the other side later, and that would have been a really hard life, right? Like yeah. surviving cold. out super cold. <laughs> There's like crazy animals and like just thinking about having to survive that environment, you would do the best you could, right? And so um, maybe some, I'm imagining treacherous things happened that you may, it would be too hard to talk about possibly, or you're like, I don't know how to cope with this, so we just aren't going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just going to try to make do because we live in this cabin with all of us and we just got to survive like it's just us facing the you know the environment Mm -hmm. and so when i put it into greater context it's like oh okay that's possibly how this this these patterns may have evolved Mm -hmm. totally makes sense but do they serve us now Mm -hmm. i don't think so Uh, so would you say family therapy in a way is understanding the past and the making certain behaviors less keratological deficits and understand their adaptations to the past, but also placing it in a context where we don't have to live that way anymore. Is, is that what you're getting at? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's huge for me. I mean, maybe that's probably, I told you I loved history. Yeah. I like understanding where we came from, where we are now so we can know where we're headed. And I think understanding the past is crucial because then it becomes less about like, oh, I'm flawed or I did something wrong and more about like, oh, like there was, these events that took place, people adapted as humans were always adapting. And a lot of times those adaptations serve us in the moment and don't serve us long term. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's really helpful. And that's a way to bypass, sh- hopefully, shame. Because okay. I think a lot of the barriers mm-hmm. to change mm-hmm. in therapy or to change, you know, even on a personal level is shame. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Jason and I have found to be really rewarding and <clears throat> helpful in our own recoveries is doing what we're doing right now, mm-hmm. right? Talking about it, mm-hmm. um, whether that's in you know small groups or or for the world to listen to, should they care to do so. <laughs> the millions um, of listeners. The millions of listeners <laughs> yes. that we have. 
but it's I've never heard I've never heard the World War II folks called the I've heard them called the greatest generation I've never heard them called the silent generation before mm -hmm. and so I I'm a big believer that the anonymity that we attach to addiction is one of the actually big problems that, that keeps people stuck um, so to, so to think about the, think about it from that standpoint that 80 years ago we didn't talk about anything and now mm -hmm. here we are trying uh, and trying to yeah. talk about addiction and hope of healing not just ourselves but others and it you know kind of dragging people out of the closet on this topic it's 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 interesting it's not just an individual this guy can talk about it and this guy can't there was a whole generation that didn't talk about anything you're saying and we're as a society we're healing from that as we move along yes and i i mean that came um, became so apparent to me because in grad school I had the opportunity to interview my grandparents about mm -hmm. how they saw certain cultural topics mm -hmm. and my grandparents revealed to me that the things they shared they had never shared with anyone Wow! and okay. that made it wow. so true to me like we had talked about um, this this concept of the silent generation the generation that doesn't talk about things um, but then through 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 that interview process that that made that concept come to life right like mm -hmm. I actually experienced it and I thought it was so neat that you know my grandparents um, I interviewed I am very fortunate I still have all four both sets of my grandparents alive and uh, and I interviewed all four of them and mm -hmm. I thought it was incredible well just process. curious like during that interview how how was it for you and how was it for your grandparents? Do you think they benefited from speaking about their experience with you? Um, I really enjoyed it because, again, it gave me greater context to who they were mm -hmm. and how that shaped our families. Um, because I think I'm a big believer that understanding isn't justification. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful to have, right? Like, mm -hmm. if I have understanding... It creates more capacity for compassion um, and empathy. And so I thought it was cool to just hear. I, I, it was a way for me to see my grandparents as um, humans, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and not just like somebody I look up to. Yeah. And, yeah like yeah. it went from instead of me having this like seeing myself as a kid relating to my grandparents I saw myself more as a human relating to another human and I thought that was really cool yeah so connecting yeah connecting mm -hmm. on a way deeper level um, the two that I got feedback from were both my grandmas and they said they really enjoyed it I don't know about okay. my grandfather's okay. but um, my one of my grandmas told another family member that she it was really healing to talk about things she hadn't talked about oh, before. Wow, that's great. That's mm -hmm. great. And so that's another reason, too, why I'm such a big um, proponent of people sharing their story, too. Mm -hmm. Because just based on that, you said we're able to relate each other to each other as humans. Mm -hmm. And right there is connecting. So mm -hmm. it's also one of the benefits of talking about it. Yeah. So, Melissa, shifting gears a little bit mm -hmm. on your website and um, very nicely done website. Cambium, it has com. Yeah. Check it out, everyone. <laughs> it's a good metaphor. Did you see on my website what the metaphor is? 
No, can no you, Yeah, yeah. Like, can can you tell me more about it? I'll do it real quick. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, so cambium is the layer underneath the, <laughs> this is ironic, the bark of a tree. Oh. oh <laughs> Considering okay. my run-in oh, yeah. with the tree recently. Yeah. Um, but it's the layer right underneath the bark of a tree, and it is the where the growth takes, play in, mm-hmm. uh, takes place in a tree. Um, so it is what eventually creates like a growth um, ring on a tree mm. but it is also the area of a tree that's most impacted by trauma so when the tree oh. gets injured it is the cambium that is most impacted so the next time I'm arguing with my wife I should tell her to get off my cambium <laughs> exactly. see how that goes that see if good. that goes well because yeah. I'm on a path to enlightenment yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not in recovery I'm in enlightenment yeah perfect yes. I like that um, but yeah so a really cool line it says in regards to working with family members who may be living with someone who has addiction is that you wrote to help family support your loved one and dislike their disease versus unintentionally supporting their disease and disliking your loved one. That is a really awesome line and I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit further. Yeah, so I borrowed the concept um, from the Betty Ford Children's Program because I think they do such a great job um, for for our list for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Betty Ford Children's, <laughs> Children's Program. Um, there's three in the country, uh, and Colorado actually happens to have one of the three. Um, and there's 20 punk, uh, 20 programs in the nation that are designed to help kiddos that are impacted by addiction. So there actually aren't very many programs at all. Um, that, considering how many families are impacted by addiction. But um, it's this amazing program for kiddos 7 to 12. It's a four-day, their main program is a four-day program, Thursday through Sunday. Um, And it really works to help the kiddos separate, like we're talking about, the disease of addiction and its effects from the grown-up that they love. And... um, you know, there could be a myriad of reasons why these kiddos end up in the program. They could have a sibling that's struggling with addiction. They could have a grandparent. They could have, you know, a caregiver. It could be a whole host of folks. But the whole idea is kids and grown-ups are confused and conflicted about addiction, you know? They, they know they love their loved one, but their loved one is doing these things that can be very harmful to the loved one, it can be harmful to the family. Um, I mean, the disease is just so destructive and its symptoms are very, can be very destructive to relationships. And so what ends up happening is this term that we use in the addiction field is, um, you know, this concept of enabling. But that's just really, for, for me, that can have a really negative connotation mm-hmm. because um, people mean to be supporting their love loved one you know it's really it's misguided compassion and love that's basically mm, yeah. it right that's what if, enabling is right yes misguided compassion mm-hmm. love. Yeah. yeah and you know if if it was a different scenario um and they were giving the same kind of help it it would probably not manifest the way it does but a, the disease of addiction uses the way that the family members are helping to feed itself. And so mm-hmm. it just, 
it's no one causes addiction you know as a family member you don't cause your loved one to become addicted but the way that we as humans in general respond to somebody struggling is oh we're going to help them out or we'll try to really you know reduce their burden or stress um we'll take on other responsibilities that would totally work out fine if they had the flu (laughs) (laughs) but they don't have the flu they have addiction and so um, the problem with that is by taking away responsibilities or, you know, trying to not stress them out. You're like, oh, you know, I can't stress them out or, or try to like kind of, uh, you know, on the beneath the surface, tweak the situation so it might go a better way. Um, that just uh, it creates a, an environment where the disease can just fester more. So where I was going with that line is how can you tease out and be like, I love my loved one and I want to support them, not at my own cost. Because that's also what happens is um, people, loved ones start doing all these things on the addicted person's behalf. And not only does that keep consequences from happening, so the behavior... um, Right for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. the The addicted person doesn't experience the opposite reaction because their family members are trying to keep those consequences from playing out. Um, but it also the family members sac- sacrifice their own health. They sacrifice their friends. They sacrifice you know all other areas of their life. And what that uh, often and what that ends up happening is there's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of anger that then can come out in tricky ways where the person that's impacted by addiction feels like they don't, their loved one doesn't even like them, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, do they even love me? And so then it's really confusing because the family member's like, but I'm doing all these things on their behalf. And then if you ask the person impacted by addiction, they're like, well, I don't feel like they really care about me or love me because of the way they're interacting with me. They're cold, their vibe is cold or it's harsh or... Um, so I really like to work with families to help them tease out and identify what are the symptoms of the disease. Okay, let's. this is what that looks like. You can dislike the symptoms. Okay, <laughs> this is your loved one. How do you show them love and support? And not do things with the idea that you might change their, love, their behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So people try to set boundaries and they're like, well, if I set this boundary, maybe they'll do something different. Yeah. And a boundary is about taking care of yourself. Well, mm. and that's really important, right? Uh, so you're so you're saying um, if we've got a loved one that's suffering from addiction, and and you you pulled this from your experience, your internship at Betty Ford with children, but it applies to adult relationships too, mm-hmm. your spouse or whatnot. Uh, don't hate the person, hate the disease. Yes. Um, and just. If, if, if you're dealing with someone with addiction, don't, don't enable them, don't do their work for them. But what, what can we do? I think, I think I've heard you say uh, the best thing we can do when our spouse, for instance, has an addiction problem is to work on ourselves, right? And, mm-hmm. and take care of ourselves. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the things that often happens is um, when I ask you know, spouses or family members what's been going on while the disease has been active, they're like, well, you know, I've been staying up late because I want to make sure they come home safe. Or, you know, I've been skipping out on the yoga class I used to go to because instead I'm like taking my loved one to appointments. Or like as you talk to the loved one, they've, 
the things that help them take care of their themselves in the about in an area of health in the six areas of yeah. health, which are okay. physical, emotional, um, spiritual, sexual. Did I say mental? Not yet. Cognitive, yeah, so yeah. cognitive, mental, and relational, right? So if those six areas of health. So usually when I sit down with loved ones, if we go through those six areas of health and how they're doing, it's not going very well mm. in pretty much almost all the areas. Sometimes spiritual health is doing okay because a lot of times people turn towards their faith um, during the disease of addiction. So sometimes that's going all right, but most everything else their physical health, they're not sleeping, they're not eating the way they would like to, they're not getting exercise. And, and just to clarify, not the person that's got the addiction. This no. is the, you know, the term is often codependent, right? The, yes. The person that's trying to deal with it as well. Exactly. That's the person who's unhealthy in all these areas. Yes. And so what's really fascinating is when I have the person, the codependent or the, the family member write down, you know, like look at where they are, and then we look at the person that's also... Um, struggling with the disease, their symptoms are pretty much the same. Mm. Mm. And where they're struggling in areas of health are almost the same across the board. So it really sh demonstrates how the disease of addiction impacts an entire family system, how all family members are touched and in experience very similar symptoms of this disease. And it is why, from my point of view, the whole family needs to get get support mm. and resources because the whole family, all these areas of health have been impacted. Mm. And so, um, yeah, it's just really, and why I think it's so important to, to separate that is that's help, helpful for the person impacted by the disease, right? Because I'm working with folks impacted by addiction and I, as I shared with my own struggle, when you're, you're in that, there's a lot of shame um, and guilt and that can be suffocating and it's hard to come up from that so if you can start to look at it as this is a disease this is a symptom of my disease it helps with the loved ones having less resentment and judgment about their addicted loved one and then also I've seen it have less shame and judgment for the person struggling with addiction I don't think any point that you've made is more important than that one and like I think our society is whacked as it relates to that topic you just talked about because <coughs> pardon me um when we when we when we have someone who has an addiction problem i i had went through an addiction problem um you're burdened with so much shame that's that's your own cross to bear right the, you're guilty about the things you said when you were drinking and you're guilty about you know just feeling so loathsome and there's just so much shame overwhelming you and then you know some of your family members get it but, but for the most part, our society doesn't teach people to, to treat you as a victim of the disease, you as the addict. We treat all the people whose lives you're making difficult, the victims. Mm -hmm. And the resentment plays out to the point where um, you're feeling shame and other people resent you. How on earth can we ever expect to heal if, if that's the way we... Uh, you know, so I, I write... Um, and when to promote my writing, I spend a lot of time on social media and often I'll put things out on social media with kind of a, um, I'll, I'll put a line that's kind of controversial because I'm trying to get people's attention mm -hmm. and the venom that I get back um, from, from just the vast number of people that don't understand that this is a disease and that I, I too was a victim. I'll write something about my feelings, right? 
and I'll hear back, well, how do you think your family felt while you were drunk every night, you know? Like, it's just, there's so much misunderstanding out there. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the most fundamental things we've got to get to the bottom of, if we ever hope to fix this um, widespread, not just on a case-by-case -case basis, is, is exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, shame for the, the addict, but also the resentment of the remainder of the family. That's just how we all have to mm -hmm. hate the disease, not hate the person. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Well, you mentioned something, too, because you talked about how, quote-unquote, enabling is misguided compassion and love. Mm -hmm. So what I was getting from your work you do with this dynamic in couples and families is to work with the loved one, but have them direct their compassion towards their self. Is, mm -hmm. is that, what, in a way, what you were saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, kind of both, I would yeah, say, right? Okay. So. So I'm a, you know, there's that metaphor that is maybe a little overused, but, uh, you know, on the plane, you're supposed to put your oxygen yeah. mask on first before you can mm -hmm. administer it to the ones you love, or you got to fill your bucket mm -hmm. if you want to have water to give yeah. out. You know, those are sayings in our field, um, and they may be overused, but there's, they, co they come from a place of that's, mm -hmm. that's of truth, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, one of my favorite metaphors comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who's a B Buddhist monk and has, I really love how he has like just a practical application to Buddhism. But one of the things he says is, um, we each have our own garden to cultivate. And um, if you want to know what you've been cultivating, you can look at the plants that have, you know, manifested. If you want, if you want um, plants of compassion and love and joy and excitement have you planted those seeds and been nurturing and cultivating those seeds mm. right and he also says um, if before you can help your beloved with their garden you first need to know how to tend mm. your own mm -hmm. awesome. and so if you see your loved one struggling with addiction and you're like, gosh, their, gar their garden, I can just tell it's overrun with weeds. You know, it doesn't have any of the plants I know they would want to cultivate. It's just a mess. And then we look over, and like I was saying, this disease impacts both, right? If we looked at the loved one um, impacted by addiction, and we also looked at the family member or their spouse, probably both gardens aren't looking so healthy because mm -hmm. the disease of addiction has polluted both mm -hmm. gardens, right? Yeah. The disease of addiction has has um, either destroyed or tainted or or made it very hard to see what brought this couple together. Mm -hmm. um, so so once the person that's suffering from addiction is starting the process of recovery, they're in sobriety and they're trying to mm -hmm. trying to fix things. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating is once that happens, that fixes everything, right? The garden blooms and looks beautiful, and the relationship's <laughs> fine, and the the codependent spouse is, it's all roses, right? Nothing nothing can go wrong there. You would there. think, yes. <laughs> but really what has happened is the person has looked and says, oh, my garden is in disarray. And, and they finally, them entering into sobriety is just acknowledging oftentimes the actual state of the garden. And maybe they've started weeding, maybe. But a lot of times we got to go back down to like, the soil right we're going to have to amend the soil we might have to pull certain things out so what i see is when somebody's on the path to recovery they now are no, the disease is no longer continuing to cause damage 
But the damage is But there. the damage is there and apparent and now we've gotta like now we've gotta to work towards healing and taking care of the garden. So instead of more toxicity and toxins in the garden, that has stopped. We're no longer polluting the garden. But now we've the real work of like actually rebuilding the garden begins. And so, so when you meet with a couple that that where they're having uh, relationship problems and addiction has been present but they're on the road to recovery from addiction um, you don't get excited like oh I can fix this quick then this is this is roll up your sleeves time right yes and I try to communicate that session one <laughs> in that <laughs> I say there's a saying in counseling that it gets worse before it gets it's better, better. Mm-hmm. and there's this idea that uh, like I'm saying now you're realizing oh I've been polluting my garden and we're going to have to now clean it up, right? And we may have to pull a lot of plants. We might have to go back to just the soil and amend the soil before you can plant anything new. Um, and that's a lot of work. So I remember my own personal experience with my own relationship, my own marriage. When I was in early sobriety, I was, I, I had this kind of feeling about myself, like I'm doing everything I can just to stay sober. What more do you want from me? Do you, do you find that when, you, when you're when you in counseling, like the, the spouse that has just gotten sober, like they've checked the big thing off their list and I'm done. You you know, my spouse needs to do the rest of the work or, or something along those, or everything should just be Humpy fixed dark. automatically, right? The garden should go back to paradise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a really common response that Jason might echo that as well. Um, well, he's laughing. And yeah, so he's laughing. Yeah, yeah, no, very true, very true. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, what I would say is they would say that and then the spouse wants to talk about every transgression that has occurred in the garden every time there's been a spill every time that the you know addicted person has cut down their favorite tree they want to talk about all the things that happened in that first session well, they've been pushing down a lot of resentment for, in most cases, a lot of years. Yes, right? so they it, they want an opportunity to share that, right? And I'm like, that comes in time. Like, a lot mm-hmm. of my work, one of the first things I really am a big believer in uh, comes from Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Fi- Highly Effective People, which is begin with the end in mind. Um, I also really love Simon Sinek's Start With Why. And so one of the very first things I have pretty much all my couples do to some extent is an exercise around what is the vision for the relationship. Because that, if we can get really clear on that and have that in our mind, then all the steps that follow, the challenges, um, the conflict that's going to arise, will have meaning to it right like suffering we feel as humans okay about suffering if there's meaning to it and so um it just be like anyone who's ever tried to build something like if you ever try to build a cabin or a house this is what i've been told um (laughs) that it's really fun to make the plans but the actual building and the decisions is really challenging and if they can keep that vision of what it's going to be like and how they're going to enjoy it and, and imagining you know sipping coffee on the porch that helps them with the day to day grind of the process and so i want 
my couples to just have such a clear vision of how their interactions are going to be. What dreams are they going to make come true as a result of this process so that the inevitable challenges, there's purpose and meaning and we know we're headed somewhere that they're excited mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And what I found too is that the, you know, quote unquote addicted partner mm-hmm. has learned to turn away from the relationship and so now they are sober and this comes up often in my office as well is that they are turning more towards AA or towards NA and so now the you know sober partner is feeling like they're losing out to the 12 step meetings or whatever it is you know exactly what you said I'm putting my recovery first Recovery, 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 that is good and obviously better, but still they need to learn to turn towards the partner. So they were playing second fiddle to alcohol. the alcohol and now they're playing second fiddle to the recovery. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think that that's must suck. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a God, big... I never want to be codependent. That yeah, I know. <laughs> what a bummer, right? Um, but kind of learning that yeah. dynamic is like, hey, we need to learn to be relational. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm not saying don't not go to meetings. Go to meetings. Yeah, yeah. But do so in a way where your partner doesn't feel like they're second fiddle. Second fiddle. Yeah, they're playing thirds. Yes, thirds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point you make. And that's another piece of that, what resentment, how it can manifest, mm-hmm. like you're saying, right? Like, if the partner's like, I'm still not... Um, getting attention or I'm still feeling disconnected from my partner uh, attending to that and I, a lot of what I find and um, I'd be curious what you think what you guys think is just you, we definitely got to address the damage that has happened as a result of active addiction and if we just focus on that it that's we, I, what I have found is it's really helpful to offset the negative emotional bank mm-hmm. account by uh, like helping them yeah. have positive experiences with each other. Yeah. Like going out and having fun. And I'm like, and I often say that doesn't betray the fact that you're on this hard path and we're going to have some hard conversations. But if you don't trust the person you're going to have these hard conversations with, we're not going to get very far. Like mm-hmm. trust is critical to um, making progress progress in the process and you do trust you you increase trust by having these little moments that Gottman calls them sliding door moments <laughs> little you know moments of contact and making eye contact and laughing with each other and being goofy and going on adventures and like just those moments and building those up over time so that when difficult things come up you're not at a deficit mm. And it helps kind of start to offset what has happened as a result of addiction. Mm-hmm. We talked yeah. about the, that's, that's fascinating. We talked about the, the um, differences from generation to generation. We talked about the, the silent generation. I bet there's also um, differences between the way, and, and this is a little bit stereotypical, but it's something you have to deal with in your practice between the way men and women come into counseling too. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine, because I know, I mean, I might be willing to talk about anything under the sun now, but that has not always been the case. I was as 
closed off as you could be for many, many years. I imagine you often find some difficult to work with. I guess it doesn't always have to be a man. Maybe I shouldn't say it that way. But I bet you find some difficult to talk to men who don't want to open up <laughs> and don't want to share and don't want to be a part of the healing process. Is that something you have experience with? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, yes, because I'm a big believer in we are of how culture influences us. Us it is why you go to different parts of the world and people live differently and they see the world differently and that's a reflection of culture. Sure. And um, how we are cultured in this, you know, we we for the most part in uh, mainstream America or what we can we could say mainstream white America. There there are certain norms. There are certain themes that come up um, around gender and people there is a gendered approach to how we raise kids mm -hmm. and that shows up you know terry real says our first relationship school is our families and so families have gendered approach to things so that's going to show up then in couples counseling there's no way it couldn't because sure. if you're in this if you're in this culture, you are swim you're swimming in it. There's no way for you not to absorb what's in the water, so to speak. And so, um, there, one of our th themes around masculinity, whoever's taking on that role, right? That could show up in a heterosexual cis woman. It could show up in a gay trans person. Like it could show up in a whole number of people but whoever's taking on the masculine role themes around masculinity are stoicism yeah um we don't share our feelings we've got to, you know you got to be assertive um we we have definitely taken traits human traits and you know cut them in half and said these are masculine and these are feminine and um so anyone in the masculine role in a heterosexual couple that's usually going to often a heterosexual cis couple that's usually going to be a dude Right. And so, if he's been raised in this culture, likely he's going to be stoic. Likely he's not going to want to talk about feelings because those are all in our culture assigned to the feminine. And so, it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, and what I do to try and get around that or to help invite men into this space is I'm an experiential counselor, so I like to do activities. I take couples outside. Um, even to just go for a walk and process what we're doing and, and have that, even if it's a mindfulness exercise or um, one of my favorite activities is to build a fort in my office. But oh, just dude's got to like building forts, right? Yeah, <laughs> usually that goes well. Always. Yeah, usually that that's well. a good one. That's a, but like, planting the flower yeah, doesn't go as well. Yeah, sometimes planting. I actually helped um, Valiant, if you guys know Valiant yeah. Living, I helped them build a garden at their sober living. Well, they had a raised bed, but we helped set it up as a vegetable, mm -hmm. a salsa garden, actually. Oh, nice. Um, but, yeah, I mean, gardening, getting outside, doing something, right? Like, a lot of times that can be really helpful, especially if you're raised as a dude. You're probably, you're, you're in general not raised to have emotionally loaded conversations. Yeah. And so I learned this in ninth grade English, know your audience. I think it's very important to like be aware of like where everybody's strengths are within the genders or within um, whoever's coming into my office, whatever, however that's showing up, and trying to meet them where they are. And if you do that, if you if you 
take them through an activity that kind of plays to their strengths or something they're comfortable with, that's got to build a comfort level with you that helps in step two and three and four and whatnot and gets them to eventually open up, yeah? Yes. And it makes therapy, like, at least early on, like I was saying, just like diving into that process, it makes it seem less scary and overwhelming. Like, this is something we can manage. It can actually have some fun. Like, it doesn't have to be serious all the time. That's the thing is, like, addiction is a serious topic and it has serious consequences. And so people think that there can be no humor or laughter and, like, man like why would i want to sign up for sobriety if it's always going to be serious and suck yeah, like there needs to be some humor <laughs> and laughter and like that, it, that that what you're signing up for in recovery is more joy not a shittier mm. existence and so like i want counseling to be like that you know and like sometimes it isn't sometimes it isn't but that's my goal is that like at least once during our session we're going to laugh and have something that's relevant that like yeah, it reminds us that, like, to be human is also to, like, laugh. Yeah, awesome. Your your enthusiasm is, is contagious and overwhelming, and, like, you're, this is clearly a subject where you've got a, just a ton of passion around it. You mentioned briefly, er, really early on in the conversation, that during your 20s you had a couple of different periods where um, you were drinking was concerning to you or was more than you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about where you are on, on your journey of with, with drinking and just with growth and, and how you feel about uh, the, top, or the, the word recovery and, and how that fits into your life. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been having worked in, you know, around different folks. This has been something I've been mulling over for a long time. And um, I think what's really interesting is this year I was cleaning up some books and I found a letter I wrote to myself when I was 21. And it was like uh, something that they do over uh, at Cedar and I think other treatment programs do as well. And it was a consequences letter. And I wrote about what consequences I was observing as a result of my drinking Hmm. and why I would want to change. And I just thought that was interesting. And like, no one told me to do that, you know? Like, I just think, like, wow, how interesting. So something was beginning to worry you at least a little bit, right? weirdness. Yeah, I had some friends express some concern. My probably worst years of drinking, at least in college, were my sophomore and junior part of my senior year and I had some friends express some concern so that that probably prompted that letter <laughs> um and then yeah so I think like I said I, I experienced some counseling it's been an ongoing kind of personal development around all areas of health drinking being one of them and trying to understand like how does it fit in or not fit in and is there a way for it to be balanced or not balanced and um are are there times does it is it something you have to be under control you know under control and what i just shared with you is what i realize is that's Did you just, just knock your vodka bottle over that's that's embarrassing <laughs> i'm kidding it's water it's water. yeah sorry it's water folks. it does look like something that <laughs> <laughs> but i think what i realize is that's just a lot of energy that's being wasted and like i told you like um it could be better spent elsewhere and I think, I, you know, I've been on this journey of, I work in this field, so what does it mean? Does, do I need to be completely abstinent, or can I have a glass of wine every now and then? Or, you know, I know when my worst periods are, and it's ongoing. And I think with me today, it continues to be a journey. So mm-hmm. times where I feel like, yeah, 
you know, I feel like I'm rocking in. I'm, all these other areas I've really worked on. I'm more of an island in Stan Tatkin's work, but I've really worked on not all or nothing, that it's not either I'm enmeshed or I'm really distant. Mm -hmm. or, um, I'm on that path of trying to understand that and always having compassion around that. And so it's ever evolving. I think like I just shared with you, I realized that I think it would be easier just to be 100% than, oh, every once in a while mm -hmm. I might share a drink with somebody because of all that energy that it takes up to just even manage that, that I think there's something really valuable about that being more just something off the table, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think your awareness of where, where it is, where it plays in your life and, and where it fits, um, that's got to just help oodles to use a technical term <laughs> as a as a counselor as you deal with people that that are dealing with it in major ways in their life to just gives you more compassion right to uh -huh. understand mm -hmm. that yeah this is a serious thing that we we have to think about and be mindful of mm -hmm. and that it can there's yeah. a lot of subtleties that can coexist right like yeah. um humans are just so complicated and it's not all or nothing and and i think that's where we can get into tr trouble around thinking like either i'm a perfect counselor or I'm not a perfect counselor either I'm a hundred percent this way like I see this recovery as a journey like I have been working on family dynamics and patterns and my own ways of being and unhealthy ways of relating for like well proactively for like a decade now you know and so I think knowing that that that's a journey and it's always unfolding and just being compassionate about where I am is hard because people come to me and I feel like, oh, I've got to be, I've already got to be self-actualized. <laughs> yeah. And, and You're expecting expertise. Yeah. Not just, not just someone who's in the process, but someone who's mastered the process. Mastered right? the process mm -hmm. and not the messy middle that Brene Brown talks about. Uh, right. But I have, I'm still, I'm still, I still rumble and I still struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I love about Terry Reel's concept is like, we can't teach people to be relational without being relational mm -hmm. ourselves really stands out to me that at times, like I obviously struggle in all these areas cause I'm human. Yeah, for sure. So in a way you're saying, or I'm also saying is that recovery is being honest. Mm -hmm. Recovery is I'm in the middle. I'm where I'm at. Mm -hmm. I can't jump over myself. Right. Mm -hmm. I have to accept my journey, but I would also say, you know, the word recovery, I feel like sometimes we get stuck on it, but I think it would be beneficial to look at it in bigger context is that recovery also means working on my issues in regards to family of origin, mm -hmm. right? I'm being active in therapy. I'm depersonalized how maybe my parents acted. Again, I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying it's okay. But I'm learning ways to be healthy. I'm learning ways to live in health. And obviously that is what you're doing. And it's definitely passionate to and not only who you are, but also your work. So I think it's awesome. You know, like I, with the, the term recovery, again, like I feel like if you're honest and you're working towards health, that's recovery, but maybe that's my definition. Well, what I'm you just defined that. is the yeah. word enlightenment. <laughs> yes, that goes back right. to what you've been saying. Man. <laughs> We're enlightenment, not recovery. Yeah, yeah, enlightenment. There we go. Everyone I like that better. This. I agree. 
Mm-hmm. Our millions of listeners should join us. Yeah. Becoming more enlightened. Becoming more enlightened. Yeah. Well, Melissa, again, thank you so much for your time. I don't know, Matt, was there something... Um, I know you're, you're looking at your notes. I, I'm just looking at this awesome website because yes. among the things I learned, I learned a lot of things that are related to addiction and recovery, and I learned a lot of things that are um, related to uh, relationships and how to manage mm-hmm. those. But I also learned that the layer right inside the bark on the tree is called the cambium. Cambium? Cam- mm-hmm. Cambium. And that's where the growth takes place. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. cambium count, cambiumcounseling.com is a great place to check that out. Mm-hmm. Melissa Ryan's website and her yeah. counseling services. And so the best way for people to get a hold of you, Melissa, um, email, go to your website, cambiumcounseling.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that's great. Okay. Those are ideal ways to get, <laughs> okay. get a hold of me. Okay, perfect, awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, is there anything you would like to add, Melissa, the, you know, a nugget that is just on the tip of your tongue? Uh, burning desire. Or did we beat all the out nuggets there? out of you? Yeah, we. Just, <laughs> I don't know. Anything I, else you would like to say? I, well, <laughs> I just am honored that you guys invited me to talk about topics that I'm real passionate mm-hmm. about, obviously. Um, and I think it's really neat that you're working to destigmatize these areas mm-hmm. of health around getting support around relational health, getting support around your mental health, getting support around. Um, particularly the disease of addiction. I yeah, I just think that's really neat that you guys are doing this and putting being vulnerable yourselves because that helps. I mean that help even me. I'm a pretty open person, but even me be more vulnerable because it still is a you know ongoing journey. And even talking about that feels can mm-hmm. feel exposed. At least mm-hmm. I feel a little exposed. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think. Uh, it's neat. It's neat to model and it's neat to have a platform where people can hear um, this side of things. It's a compassionate approach and a very human approach to mm-hmm. to life, which is always unfolding. Yes, it is. Well, thank you very much, Melissa. And with that, with Life Unfolding, and for my podcast partner, Jason Polk, I am the most seeking enlightenment, Matt Salis, for the Intoxicated Podcast, <laughs> signing off. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you. Thank you.